Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Critical Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right. So uh, this week's podcast was uh, Melissa and I discussing our 30-day off of social media challenge that we just concluded a couple days ago. Very, very uh, important thing for us to have done. We talked about a bunch of stuff having to do with it and why we did it and why we're not trying to be a bunch of uh, you know, jerks and telling you guys about it and how you should do it too, but uh, but you should do it too. So anyway, check out that podcast if you're at all interested in that topic. Uh, I We found it to be a very, very uh, fun and interesting, way more interesting experience than I thought it was going to be. All right, so uh, now let's go ahead and get on right to your questions. Mark P., when one spouse of a Sea Org couple goes on an extended mission six months or more, or gets reposted to a different city slash country, Los Angeles to flag, for example, does the partner who stays behind keep the private couple's birthing, or do they go back to a dorm until reunited with the spouse? Hey, good question, Mark. Um, this has to do with when you're in the Sea Org, you'll be, you know, a person can be sent off on a mission to a distant location, and sometimes they can be gone for quite a while. Uh, I've been off on missions when I was in the Sea Org for months or even, you know, a year, over a year at a time. And I saw uh, in the Sea Org many, many times uh, people who were sent off uh, to a whole other country even <laughs> for a year, two, three. Sometimes that would happen. Most of the time when you see really long extended things like that, it has to do with a person going off for training somewhere rather than a mission. A Sea Org member, almost any Sea Org member, can be uh, plucked and sent off on a mission, on a, which is a kind of like a special project at any time. But, all, but very, very few and far between are Sea Org members sent off for full-time training, like to flag in Clearwater. But there are, you know, there are posts in Scientology and the Sea Org that require flag training. You have to go to flag in Clearwater in order to train. So... Um, so that happens with some Sea Org members, and sometimes those training uh, can last years getting through all of the auditor training, and when you're going to the highest auditor training levels, that also means that you have to be OT or you have to get to OT as part of your training. So you end up going up both sides of the bridge. Now, like I said, this is very few and far between, and uh, these are generally not the people who leave the Sea Org uh, because they become very valuable resources for the Sea Org because those, those high-trained auditors are the money-making machines that keep Scientology going. All right, so all that being said, uh, the question here was about the birthing. When you, when you, in the Sea Org, when you're married, you get your own room. When you're not married, you have to stay in a dorm, which is uh, gender-specific. So uh, that's where you're going to be. Uh, so if you're married and then your spouse is going off and, you, and everybody kind of knows they're going to be gone for a while, generally in those circumstances, the spouse ends up getting kicked back to a dorm. That is almost universally what happens unless that spouse is a senior executive on the Sea Org base where they are located in which case nobody's going to go mess with them. But by senior executive, I mean in the top, let's say, 10 echelon of executives on the base type of people, right? 
everybody else is in the dorm system or is in a couple's birthing system. And so if, you know, the couple gets split up for some reason, they're going to a dorm. Uh, there just isn't enough space allocated, and there's always problems with getting people into couples birthing. I mean, I have heard that people get married and have had to wait for up to a year before they'll actually get their couple's room. It's not like they have these, you know, reserved off somewhere <laughs> in the birthing spaces. Oh, those are the couple's rooms, and we're just waiting for the couples. No, it doesn't work like that. All the spaces are allocated all the time, and it's constantly, there's a guy his, or a woman, it's, it's the post, is, is a birthing in charge, uh, or the birthing I see. And this is the guy you got to deal with when it comes to getting a room or getting moved around or any of that kind of stuff. And we used to be working for the birthing I see all the time, moving people's stuff around from one room to another. Whether they were getting upgraded in quarters or downgraded in quarters, their stuff still had to get moved around. And so when I was on the RPF or on the EPF, we would sometimes do these kind of projects. So that's how I know about all this stuff. Uh, all the inner workings of, <laughs> of the behind the scenes on Sea Org bases. But that's, that's pretty much how that works. And it really sucks for the spouse because then when the husband or the wife come back from the training or from the mission, they get put back on the list of waiting for a, a couple's birthing again. And they could be waiting for months or years. I remember when I got married, it took us, I think it was about uh, three weeks before we had our own room. So, you know, it's, it's always been a problem. All right, so there, there's the answer to your question. Steve Wood. When L. Ron Hubbard died, those present or who knew the actual circumstances David Miscavige, Sarge Fouth, Attorney Earl Cooley, the brokers, etc., must have been presented with an awful problem for Scientology. How could this powerful Thetan just die in such a sad and pathetic way? What to do? That was the question. Presumably, it would be disastrous to announce that their spiritual leader who had discovered the meaning of life just died and that's that. Had they known the actual circumstances, I am sure people would run for the doors and an exodus of Scientology would begin. But instead, they were totally complicit in perpetrating an enormous lie. It is now abundantly clear to me and many others that at this juncture, they were all complicit in creating a story that defies logic. Since if they had told the truth, the true believers would know they had been part of the most unbelievable con ever perpetrated on the world. I don't know if you were in the audience, Chris, or if you have spoken to people who were, but did they all swallow this hook, line, and sinker? I suppose clearly they did, as Scientology still exists to this day. Yet those on that stage knew they were not telling the truth, so therefore must agree that this was all a massive con. What other explanation is there? Well, there's the explanation of the prison of belief. And that belief is not just in L. Ron Hubbard as a man or individual or discoverer or philosopher or researcher, but it's also in this body of knowledge that Hubbard wrote or transcribed or lectured on that is Scientology. That is what you find people who come out of Scientology and become independent Scientologists, some for years, uh, that's what they believe in. They're, they were not Hubbardites, they were Scientologists. 
and there is a big difference. So uh, you can see that L. Ron Hubbard was a flawed individual. You can see L. Ron Hubbard was a human being. He actually said a few times that he was never anything more than just a human being. Um, and you can excuse any problems, issues, or humanity that L. Ron Hubbard might have demonstrated instead of the godlike state that maybe you think we as Scientologists thought L. Ron Hubbard should have demonstrated. We didn't really think that. I, didn't, I never really thought of L. Ron Hubbard as um, a, a deity or, or godlike or even superhuman in, in any real way, except for his capacity to get a tremendous amount of work done in a tremendously short period of time. It always amazed me how fast he could write. And, uh, and how fast he could research something. Now I've now come to learn, of course, that he didn't research things and that's one of the reasons he could produce so much work and make so many conclusive statements about things that are not at all conclusive or not at all evidence-based. When I was in the Scientology mindset, I thought those were conclusive evidence-based things that he was, that he was using for his research and for his discoveries. Um, so the, I, I had implicit faith in the body of the technology of Scientology more so than in L. Ron Hubbard, the individual. Uh, I did think L. Ron Hubbard was this genius, amazing, wonderful guy, but I, again, not a deity. All right. That's also, I believe, the mindset you're going to find amongst those who were there when David, when L. Ron Hubbard died. Um, they were faced with this problem. You're absolutely right. Here was L. Ron Hubbard's dead body, and how had that come about, and what were the circumstances of it? Well, it was all pretty grim. The brokers and David Miscavige already knew that Hubbard was losing his mind. I mean, there were there were people who, you know, who were around who knew that, and they kind of went along with it anyway because they probably justified or rationalized to themselves through the power of belief that... Hubbard might have an ethics issue of some kind. I mean, even Hubbard could have that. Anybody could. Uh, or his body was just given out on him and there wasn't really anything he could do about, his, about a body. I mean, once it's going down, it's going down. You know, there's not, he couldn't exert his OT powers any more than he already had to keep the thing alive as long as he could. But, you know, bodies die. They're frail things, as L. Ron Hubbard said many times. So... You know, they could, have, they could have easily rationalized how L. Ron Hubbard as a man could have descended in, uh, in his ability and sanity and yet still, like I said, believed in the text. So that's kind of how that goes. And that is what the promise and hope that was given to everybody there in, at the Palladium Auditorium when L. Ron Hubbard's death was announced was the continuation of L. Ron Hubbard's legacy of the technology. That was what was going to keep going. And in fact, they even were making promises on the stage, uh, Pat Broker's speech, about future OT levels and what L. Ron Hubbard had already finished the work. And it was all there and it's all good, guys, and we're ready to go and we can keep delivering. That was message of that event, to acknowledge L. Ron Hubbard, to sort of end cycle, quote-unquote, on L. Ron Hubbard, and then proceed forward with his body of work intact 
and able to be delivered to people so that they could get the gains and uh, you know, achieve the goals of Scientology. That's what that was all about. So, um, so nobody came out of that event at all confused about what was going on or feeling let down because their personal spiritual immortality was still assured because all the tech was there and the, the message of the event, the tech is complete. We've got it all. That was the important part. And remember that really behind the scenes, it was assumed that the work was done and that Pat Broker had access to all of these OT levels in a, in a filing cabinet or two that L. Ron Hubbard had, had uh, which Broker now had possession of. And David Miscavige was convinced that Pat Broker had this information, so convinced that he sent a raiding party but, that Marty Rathbun led to go get those file cabinets and bring them back at any cost. And they took them and stole them from Pat Broker's office and or wherever he, storage area, I think he had them, he had them out secreted in some storage area. And they got them and they got them back. And sure enough, there was no OT levels in them, at least none that anybody is talking about. And the people who were, would most be able to tell us about that have spoken about it. And they said there wasn't anything there. So there isn't anything there. There's no there there, <laughs> you know? And that would be the thing that would actually cause Scientologists to turn around and leave and, and, and be gone, done with the subject. If they were told OT8 is as far as it goes and there isn't anything else and there's no hope of ever having anything else because L. Ron Hubbard never wrote anything else. If that message could get across to Scientologists, that would change things. Um, but they're not going to believe it. They're not going to believe anybody outside of the church telling them that when the people inside the church are telling them that we definitely have OT all the way through 15 done and we just need you guys to get these organizations expanding and booming and big and then we'll give them to you, right? That's the promise within the world of Scientology right now and it has been for decades. So Scientologists are not going to believe anything else than that because they need to believe that in order to continue being Scientologists. And that's the whole little psychological mind trap that is going on there and has been going on since L. Ron Hubbard died. So there you go. Jay Imagine. It took me years to realize that I was already happy before Scientology. I was 20 when I read Dianetics. And how it was possible that a smart guy or girl would choose to become a cult member. My answer is quite simple. We were conceited, and the idea of becoming part of an elite and ruling the bloody world was amazing. What do you think about that? I think in some cases you're absolutely right. I think in other cases that has nothing to do with why people join up or become part of something like Scientology. For me, to be completely honest, when I first joined staff at 17, I joined staff because I was told that I was going to be sent off for training and that I was going to be a more highly trained and valued course supervisor than any other course supervisor anywhere else in that organization in Santa Barbara uh, had ever had. I was going to be the cream of the crop, the top of the top, right? And, uh, and I was going to be better than flag trained. Remember I mentioned in an earlier question here how people go to flag for training. That's supposed to be the top-notch training of Scientology in the world. So they were telling me I was going to go do the special training 
in Los Angeles that was the special sea organization project. And I was going to come back and I was going to be this kick-ass supervisor. Well, that status button appealed to me. And between that and the love bombing of how wonderful and great and amazing I was, 17-year-old me is eating all this up because I've never heard anybody talk to me like this before. This is wonderful, right? And it's just the most amazing thing. I'm the most amazing thing. This group's the most amazing thing. It's wonderful. So I couldn't sign that staff contract fast enough and get myself down to L.A. and start doing this training. Well, I crashed and burned hard because I wasn't, I, I didn't know enough Scientology and I didn't know enough to what it meant to be a staff member to get through the training. And after four months, I got sent back to Santa Barbara and, and my tail between my legs. Oh, gosh. And I started becoming a staff member. And it was becoming, it was over the next year or two of being in the staff environment and learning about Scientology from that point of view of delivering it to other people and dealing with their problems and dealing with statistics and production demand and people yelling at me and things like that that were going on there that I learned um, that there's a bigger thing going on here, I thought, than just me. And that this is actually, you know, the more policies from L. Ron Hubbard I was reading and the more videos I was watching and event things I was seeing, the more I was getting pumped and pumped and pumped about this fourth dynamic, this mankind purpose that Scientology had to save the world. And I was in my messianic phase as, a, as an individual. I was in my young man phase, 17, 18, 19, 20. And I thought, yeah, let's save the world. That's right. That's something we can do, <laughs> you know. And I thought that was a real goal. Like this, this lifetime, we were going to clear this planet. And I didn't know how exactly we were going to do it, but I knew we were going to do it. So that was kind of my, my whole purpose in that. So that was how it developed in me. And that's what carried me forward into the Sea Org and kept me going for 17 more years as a Sea Org member before I finally realized that uh, maybe the world doesn't need saving, and maybe I should be living my life the way I want to live it, not the way other people are telling me to. So that's how long it took me to kind of come out of that once I was really so heavily indoctrinated into it. Um, so, so yes, there was a conceit and arrogance aspect to my recruitment and to my joining staff and by eventually becoming a hardcore Scientologist and Sea Org member. Uh, but there was also this honest effort to help other people. So, you know, it's a yin and yang. It's a back and forth. It depends on the situation and the context as to what the person's buttons are that need to be pushed in order to get them, to motivate them to do what we want them to do and get into Scientology or get into the C organization, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there you go. RCK. By your own and your fellow critics' admission, Scientology is not getting any new members and is actually losing members. But at the same time, you, as well as A&E's Scientology in the Aftermath and other anti-Scientology websites, make a big deal about Scientology's tax-exempt status. If Scientology is truly dying, why should I, a non-Scientologist, care whether or not it keeps its tax-exempt status or not? Why would I want the IRS to try and take away Scientology's tax-exempt status and have the people who work for the IRS face the headaches Scientology causes while spending taxpayer money in an uphill battle? Why not wait them out and see who ends up being the last one to close the doors and leave? That person, whether David Miscavige or someone else, 
ends up shutting down the Church of Scientology, takes the money, and is hit with a tax bill on the massive personal income. Okay, well, a um, little bit of an overly simplistic conclusion there as to how all of this is going to come to an end. I don't think it's going to be anywhere near that uh, summary sweet or simple. But as far as your question goes, I want you to consider what it is that I and other critics of Scientology have been talking about when we talk about Scientology. We discuss Scientology's tax-exempt status as something that it shouldn't have because Scientology violates people's human rights. It regularly violates their civil liberties and human rights. On a daily basis, Scientology is violating the Geneva Convention, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and many laws of the land. It is a criminal organization. It is a scam that is meant to make money by leeching off of people through telling them lies uh, that are really well-crafted lies, but are nevertheless lies, in order to get them to pay and pay and pay and pay, or to sacrifice their literally their, their time at, in their life as Sea Org members, as staff members, for years, decades. For what? For nothing. So that David Miscavige can live the lifestyle of the rich and famous. So that L. Ron Hubbard in a previous time could live the lifestyle of, a rich and, of the rich and famous. That's, that's the only thing that Scientology is actually doing. That and preserving L. Ron Hubbard's words forever, uh, which in a way is a little terrifying if you think about it. 3,000 years from now, the world's blown up and the only thing that survives is L. Ron Hubbard's words on titanium plates. There's a, there's a scary thought for future generations. So, point is that we have been working to expose these abuses that happen right now as you're listening to this. These abuses are happening. The, the pedophilia, the covering up of, of sexual assault and rape, the, I, this, the human bondage and slavery, the, you know, the unlawful entrapment and imprisonment. I, there's a long list of things that Scientology is guilty of that specific Scientologists are guilty of, that David Miscavige is personally responsible for. These are things that are going unpunished every day that goes on that, that nothing's being done about these things. So when you ask, what's the, why should you care? Well, I guess I, because I hope you have a conscience and because I hope that it matters to you that there are people who are being victimized every day, every hour of every day, somewhere in this world because of the existence of the Church of Scientology. Uh, and if that doesn't matter to you, well, fine, then it doesn't matter to you, and my channel wouldn't matter to you, and none of this is going to be a thing for you. Okay, then move on. But there are hopefully enough people out there who we can still reach who are going to care and are going to want to do something about this and are going to step up and do something about it so that Scientology is defanged fully by having its tax-exempt status taken away once and for all. It never should have been granted tax-exempt status in the first place. So when you ask why is it that the IRS's time should be tied up in this, it's because they're the ones who made the mistake in the first place. They should never have bent knee to the Church of Scientology, and yet that is what they did. We've discussed in great detail why they did that. 
It's understandable. It's not like I don't get it, but it still shouldn't have happened the way that it did. And had it not happened that way, we would be in a vastly different world right now, and there would be quite a few people who would have more money, more of their actual life back, would not be psychologically damaged or suffering from PTSD or worse, etc., etc., etc. I think you get the idea. Uh, so that's my answer to your question. I hope you will consider it well, and uh, if you do, then you can let me know what you think. Alex S. Gabor. Is there any evidence that Hubbard engaged in experiments with LSD, either on himself or others? And what is LRH's connection to cocaine abusing Aleister Crowley? Okay, a little bit of a two-first. So real fast, I, no, I'm not aware of any evidence that L. Ron Hubbard ever experimented with or did anything with LSD. Uh, he was, LSD was anathema to him. He hated it. Didn't want to have any part of it. Didn't want to have his crew involved in it. And it's the one thing that a Sea Org member cannot have taken in order to be a Sea Org member. You can't be a Sea Org member if you've dropped acid. Period. It is literally an RPF offense for a Sea Org member to recruit somebody who's taken LSD. It's that serious. It's not even, it's not petitionable. There is no excuse of any kind. There have been excuses made in a few cases, but most of those people aren't in the Sea Org anymore. <laughs> so anyway, that was Hubbard's view on LSD. So I don't, I don't think he was somebody who was dropping a lot of acid. Uh, I certainly don't have any evidence at all that he did. Somebody wants to provide me with some, I'm happy to take a look at it. Uh, as far as LRH's connection to Crowley, he never had a direct connection to Aleister Crowley. Crowley was in England, and uh, L. Ron Hubbard met Jack Parsons in Pasadena, California after the war and got involved in occult practices uh, using Aleister Crowley's methods there in Pasadena with Jack. That's the connection. There you go. All right, guys, it's time for Flash Answers once again. Carol and Stacy. I have a real Scientology dictionary. Got from a person who is now out. Is it a value or should I just read it for fun? No, it's not really much value, Carolyn, but yeah, you could peruse it for fun. There's some goofy stuff in there. Um, and I think it also makes great kindling for a fire. Mary Kuchki. What are the ranks system in the organization? In the C organization, you have ranks and ratings. So you'll have um, petty officers and then officers. Uh, the petty officers go uh, swamper, um, third class, second class, first class, chief petty officer. And then you go into the ranks of the officers. I'm not, I can't remember if it starts at ensign, warrant officer, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It go, you know, goes to lieutenant, JG, and then lieutenant, and then ca there's a uh, commander in there, and then there's captain, which is where David Miscavige is at. And then I think there's uh, um, Admiral <laughs> or something. Uh, what was it Hubbard called himself? It wasn't Admiral. It was uh, Commodore. That's right. L. Ron Hubbard was the Commodore of the Sea Org. And there was only one and always only will be ever one Commodore, and that was L. Ron Hubbard. So that's basically how that breaks down. Becky M. Mack. I was reading the Wikipedia entry on Anonymous. I've lifted a quote from that article here. Project Chenology's stated goals include the complete removal of the Church of Scientology's presence from the internet 
and to save people from Scientology by reversing the brainwashing, Project Chenology participants plan to join the Church of Scientology, posing as interested members in order to infiltrate the organization. Do you have any idea if they have implemented the infiltrate part? Please keep up your work and fight the good fight. To the best of my knowledge, that never occurred. It was just basically hot air. Uh, so if anybody wants to prove me wrong, uh, please go right ahead and, and throw me the evidence. But uh, I'm not aware of any infiltration by Anonymous into Scientology like that following the 2008 protests. Okay, guys, so that is the show for this week. I hope you enjoyed this and found it interesting, educational, and informative. Um, if you did, please consider joining me on Patreon to support this channel. It is what keeps the lights on and the show going. Thanks a lot for coming around. Leave any questions, comments, or feedback in the comments section here below, and I will see them. See you guys next week. Bye-bye.